This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. So this is week number two in our summer series through Proverbs. And there are at least two things you need to know for the rest of the summer as we study this book. Uh, The first is what Proverbs invites you into. And the second is what's at stake if you reject that invitation. So both of these things, as you would expect at the beginning of a book, are well laid out in chapter one. Last week, we talked about the invitation. And this week kind of shows us the stakes of the invitation. So first, the invitation, just kind of look back, look at chapter one, verse two. The invitation given by the book of Proverbs is to know wisdom and be given insight. I know nobody who doesn't want more wisdom and doesn't want to grow in understanding. So that's the invitation. The way it happens, it's very simply stated in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that's what we can have. That's what we're invited into. You can be invited into knowing wisdom. Now this week we get to the stakes. Jump down to verse 32. We'll get here later, but let me just read a little bit of the end for us now. Verse 32. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So that's what this is about. Those are the stakes here. So my guess, if you just went to some Christian friends and said, hey, my my church is studying Proverbs together this summer, they probably are going to tell you to some degree, oh, so you're probably hearing about wisdom in church. I actually bet if you told some non-Christian friends that you're studying the book of Proverbs, even some of them would be able to say, oh, so you're getting a little crash course in wisdom. But let's be clear. So lots of people know wisdom. They're going to say Proverbs wisdom. Got that. But let's look here at what we're saying about wisdom and what wisdom actually is. When we say we're studying wisdom, we are not getting life tips. This is not some kind of a bonus like we're making a little upgrade to our lives. We have a life, and if we can live with a little wisdom, it'll be a little bit of an upgrade. Like we get a little, the bonus package in life is the wisdom. This is the difference between life and death. It's not the difference between an okay life and a good life. It's not the difference between things go well or things go even better. Wisdom is the difference between life and death. The complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens dwells secure. Those are the stakes. Not okay and better. Destruction or security. And here's why I start out like that. I want you to know what we're doing. I want you to know what's at stake. 
So here's what most people think that wisdom is and, and that wisdom does. They think when we start talking about wisdom, if they live wisely, and what they mean by that is if at the most crucial points in their lives they make the right decisions, they'll be more successful and, and more, therefore more happy. So you think, well, if you live wisely, you get a better life. And, and though people recognize, everybody recognizes that tragedy can befall anybody, there's just this common idea that if you live wisely, you have a pretty good shot at ending up with a pretty good life. So most people think that a good life is at what, what's at stake with wisdom. If I don't live wisely, I get kind of a rough life. If I live wisely, I get kind of a better one. And again, what Proverbs teaches us is there's so much more to it than that. So let me just ask you this question. Would you agree that if you failed to reach many of your dreams, your goals, you might, near the end of your life, look back on things and have some regret? Or you might be somewhat dissatisfied if you fail to, reach, fail to achieve a lot of your dreams. Now, we're probably all going to see that, that, that there's some possibility of that. To some degree, you're going to say, I could see if I didn't reach my dreams, I might be dissatisfied. But here's a harder question. Let me just frame it like this. What if I asked you if it's still possible to achieve everything you set out to accomplish and you get everything you wanted, is it still possible then to feel empty? The answer to that question is actually yes as well. So what we learn is our happiness, our sense of fulfillment, isn't necessarily based on what we do or what we achieve or accomplish. It must be something else. And according to this book of Proverbs, which is all about wisdom, everybody knows that. It teaches that what will define us isn't what we accomplish, isn't what we'll do. It's whether or not we live in the fear of the Lord. Another way of saying that is just simply whether or not Christ Jesus Christ is our aim, whether or not he is our prize, whether or not he's our all. So the second part of the book, Proverbs 1, says it like this. If you're out here thinking that adding a little wisdom to your life will make things probably go better for you here and there, that way of approaching wisdom actually leads to your destruction. Not just your harm, your destruction. What you need is true wisdom from God, and that's supremely found in Jesus Christ. So your need, my need, isn't just a pinch of wisdom here or there. It's not just a little boost. It's not just a little wisdom shot in the arm. It's to make Jesus everything to us. If you want to know fullness in life, it's to make Jesus everything. That's where we find safety. That's where we dwell secure. Proverbs 1 says, there's, when the storm of life comes, and it comes, 
That's how we find shelter in the storm when Jesus Christ is everything to us. So Proverbs is not in your Bible to make sure you have a better version of life. It's in your Bible to make sure that you know what real life actually is. So the way this part of Proverbs that we're studying this morning frames it is there are two voices. They're not competing voices because one actually doesn't hold a candle to the other, but it doesn't mean you can't listen to one or the other. It says fools often don't listen to the right voice. They just listen to the loudest one. Have you ever been in a group of people where it was clear that there was somebody who was wise and worth listening to, and there was a fool, but the fool did most of the talking? It wasn't actually that the wise person was afraid to talk or reluctant to talk. It's just that the fool kept talking to such a degree that nobody else could get a word in. We've all been part of that circle at a party, some kind of gathering. That's what we have a picture of here. Wisdom is personified as someone who does speak. Wisdom will speak up. Wisdom will try to get people to listen, but there's an awful lot of noise out there, and many people just won't listen. And so that's where the section starts. What I want to do is read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit. We're going to actually do that three times. And so that you can follow along, I just want to tell you, here's how I'm breaking this down. We're studying from verses 20 through 33, and I'm going to do it like this. Verses 20 and 21, I'm going to say wisdom is calling you. Verses 22 to 31, we see that wisdom means business. And then verses 32 to 33, wisdom is where you find shelter in the storm. So wisdom is calling you, wisdom means business, and wisdom is where you find shelter in the storm. So first, the call of wisdom. Look at Proverbs 1 starting verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. So this is the call of wisdom. Let's just stop there. Uh, The very first thing I want you to notice is where wisdom is calling from. Or, Or another way to say that is just notice where wisdom goes. Wisdom is out in the street. She's in the market. She's at the city gate. Why is wisdom going there to call out to people? Because that's where people are. People are out and about, and so is wisdom. So the first thing we need to understand about wisdom is wisdom is not something that's hidden. Wisdom is not something that's difficult to find. God is not telling us that wisdom is only in the church And if you ever want to hear anything wise, if people ever want to hear anything right or good, they have to come into the church to hear it. It's only for the good who show up here. No, no, no. The wisdom of God is available. It's out there. It's freely given. Crying out isn't, it's not a whisper. It's shouted out for everybody. And so we can be sure that wisdom personified here, which is just God, God is calling out to you. 
God is calling out to every person. This isn't something for the select few. This is a free call over the loudspeaker. So a lot of people want to know what God wants for their life, what God's doing. Christians ask it this way. It's kind of the spiritual way to ask it. What's God's will for me? The first part of the answer, God's will for you is always first to listen to him. So if you're trying to figure out what he's doing in your life and you're not listening to him, you're not trying to hear him above the noise of the street, then you're asking a question that you don't really want an answer to. If you're saying, I just want to know what God wants for my life, but you're not doing anything specifically to listen, you don't really want an answer to that question. So the very first step in seeking after God is simply to listen to him. And for us as distracted human beings, that often means we need to get away from the noise. So I said this last week. Uh, Do you notice that people aren't really bored anymore? We used to be bored. There were just these unfilled moments sort of all throughout our days. You know, we were waiting for somebody. We went to get the oil changed in the car, and it takes 15, 20 minutes. And so we would just kind of sit places without anything to do. Now we scroll. Just scroll on the phone, scroll Netflix, scroll something. There is an unlimited amount of media to consume. Did you know that there is an hour of video uploaded to YouTube every second? An hour a second is uploaded to YouTube. So let's just say you wanted to watch all the videos on YouTube. I know know this is stupid, but just go with me for a second. If you're trying to watch everything on YouTube, by the time you watched a 30-second video, you would already be over a day behind. That's how much media is out, and that's free. Okay, so yesterday, I wanted to learn how to do something at the house. And so I did what, what you do now. You find a YouTube video. So I looked up this YouTube video, and here's the best, here's the best part about this. I'm not making this up. I'm not exaggerating in any, any, in, in any way. This was a video of a guy making a how-to video who couldn't do what he was trying to teach me to do. So this is a video, and all he's doing over and over again is going, wow, this is harder than I thought it would be. It's just the camera on the thing that he's working on, going, wow, this is harder than I thought it would be, and okay, hold on, let me set the camera down. I'm going to try this other thing, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to let you know if it worked. And then the camera would cut away. And he would come back and go, okay, well, that didn't work. I'm going to try something else now. This video was, was, this video was 12 minutes long. I wasted, and he didn't do it. He, it, was, it was 12 minutes of my life. And here's the thing. There were over 13,000 people that have watched this video. I'm now one of almost 14,000 people that have spent 12 minutes watching a video that didn't teach me what it said it was going to teach me how to do. Here's my point. God is there to be heard. He's spoken through his son Jesus. He speaks always through his word in the Bible. The Holy Spirit is real. The Holy Spirit carries us along in prayer and reveals the glory of God and points us back to the work of Christ on the cross. But if we expect to just give our focus to lots of different things... yet still somehow know God deeply and hear from him clearly, we're approaching him foolishly and selfishly. 
God will speak to you if you ask him to listen. But you have to be honest and open to hearing him. He's there to be heard. You just have to recognize that so are so many other things. You have to choose him. So a big part of that just in our world today is seeing where he's calling us from and what he's calling us to and pushing away the distractions. You're going to have to block out some potential noise if you want to listen to him. So he's calling you. Move on to the second section, verse 22. Wisdom means business. I'm going to read a longer section now. So what's really the call of wisdom? If wisdom's calling us, what is it saying? What is he saying? How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called you and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I will laugh at you at your calamity. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despise them. Therefore, they shall eat of the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. So it's obvious from the, the first couple of verses here that you don't want to be called simple. How long we go on being simple? It's a Hebrew word that literally means seducible. How long can you be someone who's not terribly bright? We would probably say gullible. How long will you go on being somebody who people can't take seriously? And this is how long you're going to go on scoffing. A scoffer is one who delights in their arrogance. And what's worse, it says that this person actually delights in the scoffing. So you have to be an arrogant person who delights in being arrogant. You have to be a special kind of a jerk to relish being a jerk, don't you? And then the last person in verse 22, this is somebody who comes up a lot actually in Proverbs. It's the fool who hates knowledge. There's being uninformed, there's nothing wrong with that, And then they're saying, I don't want to know what's right or true. I have no interest in that. So we've got the simple, we've got the arrogant, we've got the fool. And what does God do with people like this? We might say, we might assume, he strikes them down, he's angry with them. But look what verse 23 says. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Folks, this is a surprising grace of God. Gullible people, proud people, even fools who cry out to God, get his spirit. We get grace. Because the truth is, 
and we all need to get this this morning. The truth is that apart from him, we're all the fool. Apart from him, we're the simple. And to make himself known is what God does in us. Psalm 19.7 tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So if you think you're wise on your own, you've bought into your own hype. But if you do what verse 23 says, which is to turn at the reproof of God, then he pours out his spirit on you. So we're not going to figure out the way to God on our own. He has to show that to us. And that means that if you know God, if you're sitting here right now and saying, I do know God, you know him because in his kindness, he has revealed himself to you. That's not something you did. That's something he did. For anybody to know the things of God is a profound act of grace and a marvelous, miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. It's something that I'm awfully concerned about. Is an attitude from a lot of Christians that displays an awful lot of arrogance, not growth in love and compassion for people who don't know Christ. People seem to be growing in contempt for non-Christians not love for them. And that's not a good direction for us to be going. Church, God hasn't given us wisdom so that we would despise people who don't have it. He gives out wisdom freely to his people so that we would disciple people who don't have it. See the difference? Not despising. Discipling, leading, teaching. And the only way we can actually do that is by, start, by starting at the place of admitting that not only did we once have much to learn, but folks, we still have a lot to learn. If you can't start from saying, I was once the simple fool who didn't know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you're going to find it not difficult, but impossible to love people who are still in that foolish place. And they are in a foolish place. That's what, the Proverbs, that's what Proverbs says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Yes, that's foolish. But you were once foolish as well. So I, I think I can actually go a step further here. If you can't start from a place of testifying that you were once the fool, that fool, you don't really understand the grace that God has worked in your life if you're indeed in him. I can go one step further. If you can't admit that you were once the fool, you might not be a Christian. Simple as that. Christians are able to say, I was once the boaster, the arrogant fool, the simple. That was me. And if it was you, and God did that in you, he can do it in other people too. So now what Solomon actually does next is takes, Solomon wrote these Proverbs. He takes this literary device of an exaggeration or a hyperbole, which is often used throughout the scriptures. And, and he says, 
that is kind of personified onto wisdom of what God is going to do. And again, this is an exaggeration. He says when a person doesn't listen to God, what God does is he laughs at them. Even when disaster strikes, he will laugh. Now he's using exaggeration and hyperbole to make a point. God does not literally do this. God does not laugh at people. Lamentations 3, says that God does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So this is a literary device being employed by the author. The picture that the Bible gives of God toward human suffering is really just the opposite. The suffering of people grieves God. This is why the life and the death of Jesus is so powerful. For Christians, God gave Christ to fully and finally suffer in our place. And for those who aren't yet Christians, the offer is wide open that anybody may come to Christ. And so the suffering that they deserve can be paid for by Jesus. And they no longer have to suffer for the weight of their sin. Jesus died because we were arrogant fools. And so even when we remain arrogantly foolish, we no longer have to be punished for it. Instead, we just get to live to God with it. And even when we remain simple through the work of Christ on the cross, through what the Holy Spirit does, proclaiming the freedom and the power of victory over sin, those old patterns are done away with in our lives. And that's how we become wise. We don't become wise of our own volition. We become wise by looking at the cross of Christ. By saying, I was once the simple. But Christ has become simple for me so that I might be made wise to him. And that offer is open to anybody. Anybody can have that. To be wise like Christ, to be redeemed by him, and then to be held in him, which is our last section. Wisdom is where we find shelter from the storm. So let me read these couple of verses, verse, starting at, let me, let me, actually, I'm going to back up and I'm going to start at verse 27 again because it's, it's really good. So it says there, when terror strikes like a whirlwind or calamity like a storm, and you try to cry out to God then, you're not going to find him there if you've ignored him and mocked him up until that point. That, that's what it's saying there. So this is not some petty jealousy from God where he's saying, you know what, if you don't give me what I want, I won't give you what you want. This is not a tit for tat. This is wisdom explained and applied. So seeking God for shelter when a storm comes up is only going to work. And this is what Proverbs is saying. Seeking God for shelter when a storm comes up is only going to work if you're really, actually, and truly seeking him. And because God has created you, he knows your heart, he knows you better than anybody else, God knows whether or not you seeking him is real. If you truly humble yourself, and if you really are calling out to him, God will always answer you. But on the other hand, if that call is insincere, if it's only out of convenience, or it's only circumstantial, What God is saying is he won't be mocked. 
It mocks God to try to reach out to him and grab at him when you're flailing in the water, but once you're in the boat and he says, hey, let's have a hug, and you say, nah, I'm good, bro. That mocks God. On the other hand, if you say, I really do want a meaningful relationship with you. In the midst of the storm, I am honestly and sincerely crying out to you. I want the hug. God will always extend to you his grace and his mercy. He will always extend his arms to you. But that offers only for people who really want him. Not just what he might be able to offer. That's the difference. When people cry out to God in the storm insincerely, they don't really want him. They just want relief from the storm. And to that, God says, you don't want me. You actually want something else. And that's why he says, I'll give you what you want. He's not saying, fine, suffer without me. He's saying, I've told you the way of wisdom. You've chosen something else. And so that's what I'm going to allow you to have. That's not the final word here. We should always, as Christians, look for the final word of God's grace. Verse 33 says, if we turn to God and listen, we will dwell secure in him. That's the ultimate promise of this section. The truth of of what happens when we reject God is real here. But what's thickest, what's most full, is the good news that anybody who humbles himself or herself, repents of their sin, and goes in the way of God will be accepted by him. There's not a scenario where you think, where you truly ask, where you, where you tell God, I want life in God, that he's going to turn you away. That won't happen. And so if you're afraid of the storm, if you're scared of what life may bring, join the club. We're all there. But know that in Christ, there is ultimate security. God's not promising here that if you're in him, you don't have storms. He's saying that even in storms with him, you will be secure. Some of us know that promise more fully than others. Some of us have lived through many storms. Others of us haven't had a whole lot. I would beg of you two things. Number one, listen to those who've been walking with God a long time. They have so much wisdom. And most of the wisdom is, I was simple and I was proud, but God called me. And through the storms of my life, he's been good. The second thing I'd say is, don't wait until the storm. That's a big part of what God is saying here. Don't wait until the storm to reach out to God. Imagine being in a calm lake, a calm sea, even in calm water in the ocean. It's so much easier to reach out, to grab the hand and to get up into the boat, to grab the life preserver, whatever it is. Now imagine being tossed all over the place in the ocean. So much more difficult to reach out. Now, God is always there. God's always able to reach. 
But if you're saying, you know what, I'll just kind of wait until the water gets choppy, then I'll kind of get around to reaching out. It's going to be so much harder. So God's begging you, listen to the wisdom of those who've lived with him a long time. And don't wait until you're in the storm. If the water's calm by God's grace right now, praise him and learn it now. He will always be there. He will always embrace you if that's truly what you want. There's no way that you ask for life in him and he doesn't give it. He doesn't turn people away. Let's hope and let's rest secure in that promise today. Let's join together for a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the wisdom of these proverbs. May we learn through them how to truly live. I want to pray now for anybody in our midst who feels like right now is when they're in the storm. May you offer shelter and may they know that in you they can dwell secure. It doesn't even mean the storm dies down. It just means that we can be sure we'll make it through to the other side. Thank you for Jesus who endured the storm so that we can be sure on the other side of it we rise with him. Pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, this is our habit on the first Sunday of most months. We're going to celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper together. And let me just briefly tell you why we do this. While I'm explaining this, I'd invite our deacons who are going to serve to come forward and just sit in the front row for just a minute. We celebrate communion as a picture and a reminder of exactly what we've just spoken about, that in the storm of life, we can be sure that God has given us a steady anchor in Jesus Christ. When we take bread, we're reminded that Christ's body was broken for us, the simple, the fool. We're reminded that his blood was shed for us when we drink the cup of juice, the arrogant, and the proud thinking we could do life on our own. And so communion, folks, isn't for people who have it all together and are nice and right with God. Communion is precisely the opposite of that. It's for people who say, I don't on my own have it all together, and through Christ I want to be made right with God, and so I take communion as an act of faith and obedience and as a picture of God's work in my life admitting all that we've just been talking about, that I've repented of my sin and I'm fully trusting in him for salvation. That's why we take communion. So many Christians think, well, I need to kind of get right with God and then take communion. It's the other way around. Communion is a picture that God has made you right with him through Jesus Christ. But because of that very truth, it's also... It also needs to be said that communion is an act of worship and obedience and a celebration for Christians. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, welcome in. Please be among us. But I would encourage you not to take these elements as their past. 
there'll be a few minutes while they're going around, I would encourage you to, to pray and ask God to reveal himself to you. Call out to him now. I'd also remind you that we're going to hold on to these things. We'll take them together at the, at the same time. There's two cups in here. One's right on top of the other. You make sure you grab both the set of cups when it goes around, and then we'll pray one more, once more, and we'll take these things together. So let's pray now, ask God to bless this, and then we'll pass out these elements. God, may this for us be a nourishing reminder that Christ gave all so that he could be everything to us. This is for people who know that we need him. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.